Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 26th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Next year, the health service is expected to have a budget of at least €22 billion. Euro. That will be €1.1 billion euro more than this year's budget. The amount of money is staggering, but why is it that these eye-watering figures are funding a health service that is failing so many people? Now, that's not to say that doctors are and nurses aren't carrying out great work every day. They are. And many of us will testify to having received a world-class standard of care. But why is it that healthcare is so expensive? And why is it that more than a billion euro extra next year will make no difference to patient care because inflation will mean that that money has already been spent as such if services next year are to stay at the same level that uh, the services we're at this year. Now, next year's health budget is still being negotiated, but if services do stand still, there could be some very challenging times ahead because demand on services is expected to increase. The HSE says it is concerned because a combination of flu and COVID-19 could result in some 20,000 people needing hospital care. Let's speak to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Is money the solution to this problem? Well, I think capacity is one of the problems, but it's not the only problem. Uh, obviously, if you look at hospitals, and last week in the Oireachtas Health Committee, we had the CEO of the UL uh, University Limerick Hospital Group, which ser- serves the entire Midwest region. And I know that has been uh, an area that has been discussed many times in the context of the plan to close uh, an A&E department in your own region. Um, and they were making it very clear that they don't have enough beds, they don't have enough consultants, they don't have enough surgical uh, theatre capacity, diagnostic capacity, almost right across the board. They feel that they don't have the tools 
to be able to treat the sheer volume of patients who are coming through emergency departments, but also the numbers of people who are on inpatient and outpatient wait times. And I think that's a story I've heard right across uh, the healthcare system as I visited hospitals over the last year. But I think one of the bigger, more fundamental problems, because you touched on, on the amount of money we, we spend, which is £21 billion at the moment, the £1 billion in addition that has been talked about, or £1.1 billion for this year's budget, most of that, Michael, will be taken up by what's called existing levels of service. So it's basically standing still money to pay for changes in demographics, uh, public sector pay increases. Obviously, nurses and doctors will get the pay increases that are due under the pay agreements. Uh, and uh, carryover measures, measures which were partly introduced last year and in the full year costs have to be applied. Mm. So out of that €1 billion, Euro, not one additional service uh, above what's already in place would be provided. So that's a, a huge additional burden even before we look at new measures. And, and we proposed an additional billion on top of that ourselves in our alternative budget to actually start bedding in more capacity in the system. But w- when I talk to healthcare professionals, yes, Increased capacity is one of the problems, but it's also how we structure and how we integrate our healthcare system. And for me, one of the biggest failings in healthcare is that we're not properly utilising primary care and community care. And when we look at what's happening in emergency departments and when we look at all of the challenges in hospitals, our first port of call is to look at where we need to increase beds, we need to increase capacity in the hospitals, and in some hospitals we do. But more often than not, we're simply not treating the people in the right place at the right time. So far too many people with chronic conditions who should be and could be cared for in the community, for example, are not being cared for because we don't have the staff, we can't recruit quick enough, we don't have the capacity to treat them. Many people, I'm sure many listening to your programme, have experienced waits for the first time to see a GP, but particularly out of our GP services. And when you're not providing services at primary and community care, that puts added pressures then on your hospital and your emergency department wow. because people feel they have no other choice but to go to emergency departments. Okay. And we don't have enough step-down beds and recovery beds, and that's something that comes up an awful lot, where we have very expensive hospital beds that cost nearly mm. six, six, seven hundred thousand a year to okay. operate. What would that extra billion that Sinn Féin is proposing do to address these problems? Well, a number of things. And one of the, 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 obviously, some of it is increased capacity in, in acute hospitals, but it's also in primary and community care and it's putting in the additional step-down beds and recovery beds that I think are needed. We've also, for the first time, and I think we're the first political party to do it in a serious way, we set out not just what we see as the quick-fix solutions, because I don't think there are many in healthcare, but the actual measures which need to be taken to properly steady the ship and prepare the health service for the transition from a single, uh, a two-tier service to a single-tier service. And the big challenge in healthcare is that we can't recruit and retain staff at the levels that we need, which is why we've put in place and funded a proper workforce planning strategy where we fund an additional 1,500 graduate and undergraduate training places and a 10% increase in specialist training places, which is your intern places for your doctors and, and your consultants. That's, for me, the biggest challenge in healthcare. We have to start taking the measures which may not be quick wins in the very short term but if we make the investments we'll uh, provide a dividend in the future because we have a greater pipeline of uh, staff coming through and and I've said this time and again Michael I don't believe that there is any magic quick fix solutions when it comes to healthcare which is Mm. why when you hear the Minister talk about a winter plan and we'll see something materialise in the next number of, of days what does it mean? You can't magic up beds within weeks it just can't be done 
So the time to plan and the time to plan for this year was actually last year. And in last year's budget, there wasn't one additional inpatient bed funded above what was previously funded. There was funding for 10,000 OK, staff, but we did see we a lot of new beds in hospitals, didn't we? I mean, we saw 50 beds go into the Lourdes Hospital, which is part of uh, that discussion about uh, the local emergency department that you mentioned earlier on. And all of those were beds that were committed to in 2020 for budget mm. 2021. It was 1,100 beds, which, yes, was very substantial, and I welcome that. But that was meant to be all delivered in one year. It took three years, and about 350 of, of those beds are still not delivered, mm. which is why we have to be looking at more realistic and deliverable plans on a multi-annual basis. Uh, last year, the minister committed to 10,000 additional staff. Only about 5,000 of those staff would be mm. delivered. And that's because we're not training enough there's a huge challenge in terms of recruitment and retention right across mm. the healthcare service. And as we know, there are many areas, including uh, children with disability services, for example, older people or home helps, where we can't get the staff to fill all of the positions. So it isn't all about sometimes the money okay, well, well, for well, some of these services and we can't get the staff. What about the bureaucracy? Uh, what about the bureaucracy uh, of delivering uh, the services uh, and indeed the strength of the unions in the health services? Uh, how much uh, does that uh, play in thwarting the value that you might get for your money? I mean, they're talking about putting in over a billion euro uh, into the health service extra on top of what we would be spending or what we spent this year. Uh, and as you say, that's already gobbled up. You're talking about putting a, a billion more in on top of that. Uh, what's to say that that wouldn't be gobbled up straight away as well? Well, first of all, it's, it's how you target the investment and where you spend the money. So you have to plan and spend the money and invest additional capacity where it's needed most, which is why we spread the investment, not just in acute hospitals, but particularly put a focus on primary care and community care, the shifty emphasis of care to ensure that we can better manage people away from acute hospitals, which to me is one of the, the, the step changes needed in health. Uh, a restructuring and how services are delivered, in other words. Well, and, and that's part of it as well, because it, it's also about reform. And, you know, you talked about healthcare trade unions. Healthcare trade unions represent uh, those who work on the front line in healthcare. Uh, we came through a pandemic where almost everybody universally commended all of those who went above and beyond the call of mm. duty. And everybody knows when they get into hospital, you do get very good care by the staff. Yeah. So I don't believe that the staff are to blame at all for what's happening in the healthcare system. We simply don't have an integrated healthcare system to the level that we need, which is why I've uh, spoken very passionately about these regional health areas that are being established. Mm. And I support them in principle. And, and the logic of it, Michael, is that at the moment, primary care, community care and acute care all operate in silos. So you could have a hospital manager who needs to consult a hospital manager in community services to get a step-down bed or home health care or mm. intensive home care package for somebody in hospital. The logic of the regional health areas is that you will have one single management tier across the health service from primary care right up to, to acute hospitals managed under one population-based regional health area that it would have its own budget. And within that budget, I would then, if I was minister, give them the actual responsibility by, de- by devolving power in relation to mm. recruitment, 
making them accountable and making sure then that the money that we are spending, that it is targeted, that we're getting value for money. Because I appreciate mm-hmm. people listening to your programme when we have a cost of living crisis. 21 billion euros spent on health is a huge amount of, of money. We have to get better value for money. Yeah, you can't even get your head around market. figures like that. Uh, I mean, it seems as though it's a bottomless pit. And if we're talking about a budget that could deliver services on the scale that they were delivered this year, but will come under pressure because of 20,000 people ending up in hospital as a result of COVID-19 and indeed the flu. Well, then we'll see what happened during the pandemic, that people will be prioritised into the system and people will be prioritised out of the system. So if you have need for hospital care because of something as serious as flu or COVID-19, you'll get that, but you might go on a waiting list or have a procedure cancelled because uh, those beds are are taken up by those people. Uh, But we've seen this before and that figure actually of 20,000 seems very small relative uh, to the figures uh, at the peak of the pandemic people will remember there was often two, four, five, ten thousand people in hospital with COVID on any given day. Uh, So you just wonder if the additional billion euro that Sinn Féin is proposing would mean that procedures wouldn't be cancelled when these surges uh, happen. Well, I think there's a number of answers to that question. The first is we would look at increasing protective capacity in a number of areas, particularly for children, for example, with scoliosis and spina bifida. Uh, we, again, put, put forward a package of measures in those areas of about £18 million in our alternative budgets to increase investment in Kappa hospitals so that if we have a, a surge in capacity for, for non-urgent uh, um, cases or, or, in some cases, trauma cases, which are urgent, that you don't see then a wholesale cancellation of elective surgeries, for example, like uh, treating children with spina bifida. And I think it's the same then across the health services. We have a promise of uh, three elective-only hospitals. I think that needs to be expedited, and those hospitals need to be built quickly because what that does, it provides that uh, protected capacity for elective procedures, and we have to get away from a situation where every time we have a spike in emergency departments, uh, the first and immediate response, and it has to be the case in some cases, that we see this wholesale cancellation of elective procedures, which then drives up waiting lists. Um, but the best way to avoid that is actually to increase uh, hospital avoidance in the first place, which is to make sure that, as I said at the very start, mm-hmm. we actually reorientate healthcare to better treat people in the community. And I accept that some work has actually been done in this area because we saw the introduction a number of years ago of community health networks. We have community health partnership teams. Uh, we have teams and uh, network teams of disciplinary, interdisciplinary teams that treat older people, for example, in the home. The problem is we simply can't staff them. Money was made available. The same with home health. Yeah. There was millions of euro of additional hours made available two years ago in the budget. The HSE can't recruit the staff. Why? Because of the levels of pay, there's working conditions in, in those areas at the lowest levels of, of pay right across the healthcare system. So there's, there's retention okay. and recruitment issues at play. Yeah. That's the type of measures I would take. It's about targeted measures to look at what's the problem. And All the right, best way and to understand it, Michael, put yeah. yourself in the shoe of the patient. And when you're in the shoes of the patients, you look at their experience and then you ask yourself, 
should they be treated somewhere else Absolutely. or is the best yeah. place for them mm-hmm. in an emergency? Uh, and whatever decisions, whatever decisions are, are made will impact on many of us over the course of the next year as patients. Indeed, tomorrow's budget will be uh, the most anticipated budget in 15 years since uh, the crash and it's a budget uh, that will impact on the lives of everybody in the country for decades to come, it would seem. Uh, the news agenda is going to be dominated by the announcements that are made, the decisions uh, that will be taken and indeed the impact that that will have on people's day-to-day lives. Uh, you spoke about the emergency department in Navan earlier on. Uh, it's inevitable at this stage that uh, the government will move to close uh, the ED in Navan. Uh, would uh, this be a good week to make that announcement? No, I don't believe so, Michael. And, you know, as I said at the very start of the programme, uh, we had a, a very, very long session with the uh, senior management team of, of, of the uh, University uh, Limerick Hospital Group uh, last week in the Oireachtas Health Committee. And we had the CEO of that group apologising to patients for how long they have to wait in emergency departments, but also for how long they have to wait on waiting lists. We have 50,000 patients per capita terms, the highest of any of the regions in, in that uh, region. Why? Because we had four emergency departments, we closed three and we ended up with one. And I think that's a real wake-up call to anybody who believes that taking emergency departments' capacity out is the solution mm. to fixing a problem. I accept and everybody accepts that we have an unsafe service uh, service in, in Navan Hospital, but many emergency departments are unsafe. Limerick is unsafe and it's the only emergency department in the Midwest. We have a HICWA report which identified the whole range of areas. Sure, sure, but it would be a good week to announce bad news because nobody would notice really because it would be overshadowed by everything else. Uh, would well, you be Would I, you I be concerned? Much, uh, I doubt very much, Michael, that your programme uh, would not notice a big announcement like that and I'm sure that you would cover as well, but I, I certainly uh, would say that the people at Navin and I attended a protest, a number of protests that took place in Navin over the years, uh, there's a huge groundswell of opinion against closing the emergency department service because people understand that at the end of the day, well, there are different opinions coming from clinicians. The patients have their own experience and, and people want the very best services in their own hospital. They understand you can't have specialist services in every hospital. But they also know that taking a service out, uh, particularly an emergency department service, uh, is not always the best solution and they, okay. they look to Limerick and they look to the Midwest and say we don't want to be that region and, and I certainly wouldn't want okay. to put the people of, of Loud and Mead and other uh, uh, surrounding counties in, into that situation. Alright, we leave it there. Thank you indeed as always for joining us on the programme. That's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan, TD. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there'll be much to watch out for in uh, tomorrow's budget. Uh, Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who's been working with uh, the homeless for many years, will, as he does every year, be watching what can be done to tackle the housing crisis. And he joins us on the line. Good morning, Peter, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. There's been many promises made, uh, a big plan, the Housing for All plan. It seems a lot of those targets haven't been met. And this crisis continues. What are you hoping to hear tomorrow? Well, in the first place, uh, most of the people I work with are on social welfare. I would like to see social welfare payments increase by 20 euros at least. That's not going to happen. But when you consider that most people on social welfare 
are managing to swim, to stay afloat until there's a crisis occurs. And a crisis occurs every Christmas, it occurs every birthday, first communions, confirmations, back to school. They have constant crises in their, in their lives, which pushes them under the water. Now, the, with inflation running at 10%, a single person gets 208 euro. That's only worth now about 190 euro because of inflation. And so without a 20 euro increase in social welfare, that's just pushing people on social welfare even further under the water. But you said you don't think it's going to happen. Why is that? not. They're talking of a 10 euro increase, which will, as I say, push people under the water. And furthermore, if you're on social welfare and you're living in a local authority accommodation, the rent depends on your income. So if your income goes up by 10 euro, your rent goes up by 4 euro. And you actually only get six euro of an increase. So we need to see uh, uh, social, the Social Justice Ireland have called for it, a 20 euro increase just to allow people on social welfare to stay afloat. There will be other measures, though. I mean, there will be other measures, won't there, in these one-off measures? Uh, I mean, the credit on your electricity bill and so on is going to be 600. So that has to be taken into account in the overall round, doesn't it? No, what we need, that's a once-off payment. Mm. Uh, what social people on social welfare need with inflation at 10% is, uh, is certainty, a certainty that their income will not push them further down under the, uh, under the water. Yeah, €600 Euro towards your, uh, towards your uh, energy, energy mm. bills will be very welcome. Will it be enough? That depends on how quickly and how fast the, uh, the, the price of gas and electricity goes up. But it, that will be very welcome. The other thing I'd like to see is a ban on evictions, uh, on a ban on no-fault evictions from the private rental sector, at least for the next six months. Mm. We did it during COVID on the grounds that it was an emergency. I think we need to do it now on the grounds that we have now have a housing emergency. Uh, and obviously the, uh, the argument against it by government is that it's against the right to private property in the Constitution. But we were able to do it during COVID, and I think we ought to be able to do it again now during these winter months. And that happens in several European countries. There is a ban on evictions between October and March uh, during those uh, winter months. Uh, I suppose there'd be fewer evictions if people paid their rent, and rent is very expensive, and you can understand why some people run into trouble sometimes. Uh, there's been talk uh, of help for landlords and help for tenants. What would you like to see in that respect? What, I, what I've suggested uh, is that landlords either compulsorily or voluntarily would reduce the rent by 30%, <clears throat> and uh, the tax they pay on rental income would be reduced by 50%. That would be a win-win for both renters and for landlords. Uh, the problem with that is the big investment funds who own tens of thousands of rental property, they don't pay any tax on their rental income and they'll be screaming blue murder and going all the way to the uh, Supreme Court if such a reduction in, in, in rent was, uh, was mandatory. Mm. Uh, should there be tax credits for people who are renting? Absolutely. Uh, some ways of mitigating the huge impact of, of, of the cost of rent uh, have to be devised. Some people are paying 50%, some even more than that, of their wages to a landlord. And on top of that, people are paying top-ups. I know somebody's on social welfare, €208 Euro a week. He's uh, in private rented with the HAP. 
Now, he's paying about €30 Euros towards the HAP, that's fair enough. But every month the landlord demands a top-up of €120 Euros out of his €208 Euros mm. social welfare payment. Okay. And a lot of people are in that position, and it's absolutely, it's absolutely crucifying them. I know mm. one man who has to pay €300 Euros a month out of his €200 Euro, uh, social welfare payment. Uh, uh, what, what? top up to the landlord and the reason for that is because HAP, the HAP payment hasn't increased for the mm. last five years it's still stuck at five years ago and the rents have gone up over those five yeah. years by obviously 20% if you could rent somewhere at uh, the prices charged five years ago you'd be doing very well uh, but what does that mean for people what do they have at the end of the week well, they go without. They have no disposable income. They barely can feed themselves. Uh, they will. I know somebody who hasn't put on any heating uh, yet, uh, and is afraid to put on the heating because of the the cost that it's going to be. So they just uh, they 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 just have no disposable income mm. whatsoever. I think there's probably a few people who have turned on their heat. Uh, they may be surprised at what I'm reading uh, this morning is true when they get their heating bills whether it's electricity or gas or, or whatever the case may be because it's going to be so uh, expensive uh, but uh, as we go into the winter there's a lot of uh, challenges uh, and uh, homelessness uh, is something that you work so closely with. I'm also reading this morning uh, a survey of local councils in the Irish Independent and it seems as though many of them are at capacity levels as figures continue to increase. Yeah, the numbers are going. Once that ban on evictions was lifted during COVID, uh, the number of homeless people has gone up and up and up and is now at a record level. Uh, So we need to... uh, The ban on evictions, if we introduced it for at least six months, I would recommend two to three years. That's not going to happen. But even if it was introduced for six months, it would help to stabilise the the homeless figures and allow us to, to get to grips with... Uh, mm. You get to grips with uh, the, the with 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 the issue. What what worries me or what uh, depresses me is any lack of urgency on the part of government or local authorities mm. to deal with this housing crisis. Where are we? A lot of local there's vacant homes everywhere. A lot of local authorities have done very little to bring to identify vacant homes and bring them back into use. The government are planning on buying 500 modular units, which I think are great. Mm. I would recommend 5,000 or 10,000 modular units to be purchased. Yeah. Uh, Can I just ask you um, what you would do for landlords uh, if there was a ban on evictions uh, and uh, the tenant wasn't paying their rent uh, and they they couldn't be evicted for two years? Uh, No, uh, it's a ban on no-fault evictions. Okay, yeah. That means that if a a tenant refused to pay rent or is engaged in antisocial behaviour, of course there has to be some procedure to allow the landlord to be exempt uh, from the ban on evictions mm. and that should be easy enough to uh, to implement. Okay, is there hope on the horizon, the daft.ie report on house prices this morning suggesting that they're beginning to stabilise? Uh, they're not increasing as fast <laughs> yeah, as they yeah. were increasing, they're still going up yeah, they are, and that's, yeah. that's leading to a lot of landlords selling up they want to capitalise on their asset while house prices are high before they start going down again. Mm. So that's leading to, to landlords exiting the market. The, uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, 
Yeah. You know, it, we could reduce the house of prices overnight if we introduced the Kenny Report. <laughs> Kenny Report recommended controlling the price of land on which building was to be uh, to be to be mm, built. Yeah. That report was was produced 50 years ago, and we haven't heard a whisper from any government since about implementing the Kenny Report. That could reduce the price of houses by 30 percent. Yeah, and in some cases by more uh, if we were to introduce that. Uh, and when we say house prices are stabilising according to Daft IE they went up by 5% last year uh, on prices last year compared to 8% a year ago in Mead 7% higher than a year ago in Loud compared to 11% uh, a year before that so they are continuing to go up in quite significant uh, percentages but not uh, as high as those percentages would have been previously Peter thank you indeed for joining us Uh, we'll uh, find out what our fate is uh, of course when the ministers take to their feet to announce uh, budget 23 tomorrow uh, and thank you as I say for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning uh, that is Father Peter McVerry uh, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM Well such is uh, the anticipation ahead of uh, tomorrow's budget uh, that as you know undoubtedly thousands took to the streets in Dublin on Saturday as part of a, a protest organised by the Cost of Living Coalition which uh, is made up of many civic groups and indeed political parties. Let's speak uh, to Gino Kenny, who's a TD for one of those parties, People Before Profit. A very good morning to you, Gino, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, there's going to be a, a lot to consider when the ministers make their announcements uh, tomorrow, but of course not everybody is going to be happy. No, Michael, and obviously the, kind of, the proof is in the pudding in relation to what they announce tomorrow. Um, and many people will be kind of observing that budget uh, in relation to the relevant cost of living. Uh, we're kind of we're living in a slightly different world than we did this time last year. Um, we had slight kind of inflationary issues this time last year, but obviously that has been um, amplified in relation to a number of uh, issues. So people are, are rightly worried in relation to the cost of living, particularly around energy prices. Uh, energy prices. I mean, if you took somebody's bill this time last year, uh, it would be it, it almost had doubled in relation to what they're spending on energy costs. So this is a kind of fear, and that's why you know twenty thousand people turned up to the protest on Saturday, and it was it was a really good protest. You know, because sometimes you go to protest. And you, Sometimes just the kind of the usual suspects in some ways, uh, but this time there was a lot of people that you know probably wouldn't normally go to protests were there. There was a whole kind of range of civic groups, you know, unions and so forth. So it was very, very, very good that way. Um, and the kind of I suppose the message to the government that you know if they don't act in relation to tomorrow's budget, uh, there will be more protests, and that will escalate into possible industrial action because mm. obviously unions. Um, you know, this will manifest into kind of you know it's happened in the in the past in relation to industrial action. Okay. Because uh, yeah, because people's relative you know income, mm. whatever it is, the fixed fixed income or so forth, will not be relative to what prices are. At, at that particular time. Okay. So, Why is it that you think uh, the government won't act? to help people cope with this increase in the cost of living. They've said they're going to do everything they can. Uh, I think we can actually hear a little bit of what the Taunasha had to say to the Dáil last week. 
Um, the details will be announced by Minister Donoghue and Minister McGrath um, next Tuesday. Uh, and people will see a responsive scale from the government to help them uh, with the cost of living crisis. That will involve a multi-billion euro package and people will see that uh, in their pockets and off their bills within weeks. Uh, that will apply uh, within weeks um, to be deployed well before Christmas. And people will also see a multi-billion euro package which will take effect in the new year. It's hard to argue with that now, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you're, you're talking about an overall package of €14 billion Euro or, or, or thereabouts, yeah. and the Minister promising there that people will see the impact of how that money is spent in their own pockets in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, no, Michael, I'm, I'm sure they will act. I'm not saying they're not acting, you know, but whether that's enough, again, that will be kind of the devil's in the detail. But, you know, this is a crisis that's a, an ongoing crisis. And I've never said that the government are not acting. They're acting, obviously. But will it be enough to actually make feel, make people, working people, you know, uh, you know, quell that fear mm. in relation to being poorer, right? And that's not just something that's kind of a, in, their, in their own mind. It is a, fa- a fact that most workers are taking a pay cut at the moment mm. because of inflation issues. And, but not but just here, across, across Europe. Across Europe, yeah. yeah. And mm. this is a kind of a spectre that is haunting kind of uh, very quite advanced economies and beyond. Yeah. So the government are acting, but whether that's enough, I'd be quite sceptical, particularly around energy costs, mm. particularly around income mm. and uh, fixed income. Because if you have a fixed income, you're kind of slightly snooker, uh, to say the least. Okay. If, you know, well, they're talking about increasing uh, welfare rates by €10. Euro. They're talking about helping people with energy bills up to €600. Euro. They're talking about uh, a higher uh, rate uh, before you enter into the higher uh, tax band. Uh, and yeah. they're talking about spending €14 billion euro by the government's own admission. It, it, whilst it's an awful lot of money, Oh uh, no! They yeah. won't. They no, won't. They won't be able to help everybody. Uh, we'll just hear what no. Leo Bradker had to say about that. Yeah. Okay. But it will be our objective to do so for those on the lowest pay and the lowest incomes, and for those on middle and higher incomes to help them out in a substantial and meaningful way as well, because it is important that everyone gets help uh, with the cost of living, but that those who need the help the most get the most help, and that will be uh, our approach. That's the government's approach. The Tonisha says that's what you wanted to hear, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously what's happening, and it's not just in Ireland, that there is massive government intervention. Because obviously, you know, governments, particularly Ireland, have kind of their policy has not to be kind of interfere with the market as such. And if you look at the present crisis, it's down down to kind of neoliberal kind of market economics in relation to energy costs and so forth and food prices and so forth. So they are... Mm. Making this intervention, there's no doubt about that. I'm not, mm. that's, I'm not disputing that. But will that intervention be enough to make people feel, I suppose, more at ease, mm. and in, in reality, uh, make them feel less poor? Yeah, well, that's what's, that's what's happening. Is you know there any happening? ideal solution in a crisis like this? I mean, you're talking about capping energy prices, for example. There's a, a lot of very well-paid people who live on their own. They're never at home. They go out for dinner and their energy bills are very low. Um, uh, and uh, they won't be too upset uh, if they get €600 Euro, uh, for something that uh, they're not really using as much as a family of four. 
No, no. And I think, I mean, obviously that's to, to be debated about universal, I suppose, intervention. Um, so obviously there is people in society that, you know, they can cushion these, you know, shocks as such in relation to energy, in relation to food and all, you know, all the other kind of things that in society around rent and all. There's a lot of people that can't cushion that um, and they will suffer, particularly people who are in low incomes. Um, so in that on that case in that situation, you need to do put in radical measures so people can heat you know their homes and so forth and put food on the table. Because uh, if you can't do that, then you have a, you have a, a serious problem. Yeah. But what we would and people for profit have said, uh, and it's, I don't think it's completely radical, is to actually nationalise the energy sector because obviously you know twenty years ago it was deregulated, and now we have from then we had. I mean, one of the lowest ESB kind of, I suppose, utility bills to one of the highest. And you have energy companies now making vast amounts of money. Now, I think that's immoral, Michael, mm. at, this, at this moment in time, that energy companies can make vast amounts of money. Now, hopefully the government will introduce a, uh, yeah. a wealth tax mm. uh, on these energy companies because yeah. you just can't, in a situation like this, you cannot be making profit on people's, Situation. Yeah, it's a great war, you could say, for some of these energy What's companies. That? It's a great war for these energy companies. Oh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. I mm, mean, obviously, mm, energy companies have mm. done extremely well and will continue to do very well. Mm. So there has to be a kind of a windfall tax in relation to what their profits okay. you know, earn. So, look, that's, that's not radical. This is very kind of straightforward because you don't do that. I mean, protests, what you've seen on Sunday, Michael, or on Saturday, will be multiples of that if the government do not act. And the government will basically will be, you know, the, the people will want to get rid of the government if they do not act on relation to this particular crisis. Okay, we don't have long to wait. Uh, we'll find out how they'll act tomorrow. Obviously, we leave it there for the moment, though. Gino, thank, thank you indeed for joining us on the program. As always, that's Peter People before Profit TD. Gino Kenny. Michael Reed on LMFM. So what will uh, the ministers uh, tell us uh, tomorrow? Well, much of it has already been leaked uh, to the press and let's find out what to expect with Gavin Riley, who's political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with the Mead Chronicle. Good morning to you, Gavin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. This is going to be a, a massive package. It's going to be impossible to please everyone. But what are you expecting to hear from? the ministers tomorrow? Uh, I, I think actually the, the, the main challenge that they'll have because you know each of the two ministers only has 45 minutes to speak so you'll have Pascal who's standing up first for 45 minutes dealing with the taxation side of the budget what taxes are being cut or what, what lower rates are going to be extended for example at the excise on petrol and diesel likely to be rolled over so you'll hear that in his speech and then you'll have Michael McGrath coming up for 45 minutes afterwards discussing all of the spending allocations I think what will nearly be more interesting is how they manage to squeeze the whole thing mm. into an hour and a half, which, which sounds on the face of it like it's an awful, long, awful lot of time to be standing up in the doll chamber to, to rattle through all those details. But when they've only got 45 minutes each, particularly on Michael McGrath's side, because when he's responsible for the spending side and so much is being allocated to spending this year, it will actually be an almighty challenge to try and tick all the boxes to make sure that people that are listening to that speech do actually feel like they are being catered to in some way. Because although the government you know, won't be able to please everyone, as you rightly say in the introduction, they are going to try and at least do something that pleases most people, or at least the vast majority of people in society. And everyone then, therefore, needs to feel like they are addressed in the speech to some degree. So how, how they manage to juggle that uh, will be interesting. Um, what will also be particularly fascinating, of course, is the fact that 
although we are treating it all as, as sort of one and the same. From the government's view, uh, this is actually two budgets in one, that it's also a mini-budget to tie people over for the rest of 2022, as well as the regular budget for 2023. Mm. And that in itself creates an awful lot more expectation, and it means that they're going to have to try and squeeze in even more stuff into tomorrow's speech and to try and sort of manage information. So uh, it might be a sort of a sideways look at things, but actually just the, the management of information and how they actually try to disclose all of that in the narrow time that they've got actually would, would sort of be fascinating. And Is that and why there's been so many leaks? Uh, I mean, we're hearing this morning about free school books uh, from September. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It, it is absolutely the reason why. If, if people might remember uh, back going back 10 or 11 years ago, back in the days of peak austerity, we really got into a culture of having the budget leaked in advance then because they almost needed to soften the public up or that they were flying kites to see just how tolerable certain ideas might be and then they might rein them back in if it actually turned out to be not so bad. But the end result being that by the time we got to budget day and all the stuff was being announced, you were sort of softened up or you were conditioned to expect it. This time around, it is precisely the opposite. It's got, they've got so much of what would in other times be good news that mm. they need to get out. They actually, they, they need to manage it because you couldn't just possibly have Michael McGrath standing up tomorrow and saying free school books for everyone in infant classes next year and expanded this and expanded that mm. and Pascal Donahue who's saying the higher tax ban is now going to be cut off to 40,000 euro and we're going to raise the entry point for USC as well yeah. but, you know, you'd completely get, get lost in all the details that you wouldn't realise how much inverted commas good news there is in there but of course all that good news tempered by how the government really has to run to stand still given the rate of inflation right now. Yeah and that will be the same with household budgets uh, as well and that's exactly what people will be looking at isn't it uh, when they combine all of the gains against against the increases in the cost of living. Yeah, which is why we've had the the one mantra that we have heard from ministers over and over again is that they're not going to be able to to deal with everything. They're not going to be able to fully compensate for the cost of living. So, Mm. So households really have been told for a long time not to expect that their incomes are going to be nine, 9% higher next year than they were this year, that being the current annual rate of inflation. And even those in the public service who may be looking at pay rises of up to about 6.5% over the course of the coming years, it's still not going to keep pace with what there is there. So really then the, the, the task that falls to the government is, well, what can you do, not necessarily to put more money back into people's pockets, but what can you do actually to make life cheaper in the first place? And that's where maybe you're, you're going to likely to hear Pascal Donahue talking about some of the changes that he might be able to make to the tax code or, you know, that idea of raising the entry point for the higher tax band up to €40,000. That would save uh, the average full-time worker something in the region of about €615 or €620 per year, which is, you know, significant enough you'd rather be in your pocket than someone else's. But you're going to be hearing an awful lot more about, you know, how you're going to make life cheaper because the government's big concern, of course, and and this this has been somewhat overglossed because of how much they're, they're talking about the overall size of the package. The more money that they put into people's pockets, there is a danger, actually, that you, you make higher prices slightly more affordable, and that only pushes inflation further. And what they are ultimately trying to do is to take the steam out of inflation rather than helping keep up with it. Now, the other thing that we've been hearing, apart from not being able to do everything despite the huge injection of cash into the economy through this budget, is that people will see uh, positive changes in the coming days and weeks. What can we expect in the very short term? In the very short term, it's uh, again. This is another one of the the expectations the government is going to have to manage. You will get a rolling over of a lot of things that are already the case. So, for example, people remember back in February or March when, when petrol prices began to immediately surge and the government cut the excise duty on petrol and diesel by by fifteen and twenty cent per liters, uh, respectively. That was only ever supposed to be a temporary measure. So they'll be announcing that they're going to sacrifice about half a billion euro of tax revenue 
and they're going to roll that over. But it's only going to make sure that it's only going to leave people feeling as as pinched as they already are. Likewise, mm. the the lower rate of VAT on electricity was only supposed to be a temporary fixture until the other side of the winter. They're going to have to announce that that's going to be rolled over, but that in itself costs more money, or is the government having to spend more money to maintain something that people have already become accustomed to. Um, a lot of the, the immediate spending that might p- make people feel slightly better off will be on the social welfare side. We're likely to see uh, a large lump sum of the fuel allowance for households that qualify for that. We're likely to see at least one or possibly two extra payments uh, of uh, children's allowance. So ordinarily, there might be something in the line of a Christmas bonus sort of payment, but there's likely to be uh, something else as well, possibly in the near term, which is intended to be a direct payment to families with children. It's the most efficient way Mm. of putting money into their pockets is to have a one-off hike uh, of that. You'll have the rollover of lower public transport costs, which will be some people in the county in the counties who live across the rail corridors who may have bus services at their doorstep, those will be rolled over. But but another major thing is that the government is going to spend a lot of time tomorrow talking about new measures which are going to cost the government a lot of money, but which are actually only rolling over uh, cuts that were already there and which are going to mean that people won't really feel like they're getting much of a benefit because they've become used to those lower costs or, or those lower taxes already. Okay, we talk about some of the issues that have been leaked, like a 50, 50 cent increase on the price of a packet of cigarettes. I take it it'll be 50 cent more expensive for your smokes on Wednesday. That'll happen yeah. immediately, in other words. Uh, what, yeah. what, what, what uh, not, not to interrupt you, by the way, yeah. Michael, but that, yeah. that's kind of fascinating because that, that is likely to be, because it's the only tax which is being increased overnight, that is likely to be the only vote, per se, as it stands right now. Right. It's the only one that will be actually be voted on in the Dole Chamber tomorrow night, which is important because, don't forget, although they survived a recess pretty comfortably, this is still a minority government. And if this was seen as not doing enough to try and put money back in people's pockets, a lot of the independent EDs who supported the government mm. two months ago wouldn't do it now. So it, it's interesting that there will only be one vote on Tuesday night to really test the colour of their money and it will be something like tobacco which isn't usually so contentious when the vote comes. Okay, if there's to be these 10 euro welfare increases, uh, will they happen on Wednesday or Friday or will it be March or will it be January? Uh <laughs> Probably none of the above. I suspect November right, okay. uh, will be will be the okay. early time for that. I think part part of the difficulty is actually just putting all the sort of the machinery in place to, to to do all of that. But certainly it will be before January. Welfare increases are going to be part of the the immediate uh, you know cost of living uh, crisis elements to it. It's not going to be part of next year's budget per se. It's going to be part of a mini budget for this coming year. So some of that will be much more in the near term, but but it won't be in time for probably the next available payment it might be for for something a week or two down the line or possibly into November. But it, so it will be a matter of weeks rather than a matter of months, but but not quite overnight. OK, and the three coalition leaders uh, met into the small hours last night uh, trying to iron out uh, some of uh, the last uh, pieces of uh, this budget jigsaw. Uh, is everything agreed at this stage? Uh, almost everything is agreed. There, there was, uh, as of last night, the last time that I was able to check in with people, there was still a, a little bit of examination to be done around uh, tax treatments for landlords and for renters. Now, the government is under a lot of pressure to do something for tenants this year because there was nothing in last year's budget that was a specifically targeted element for renters and for tenants. So there's likely to be a tax credit for renters this year. Again, part of the ambition would be that you would have that available 
by the tail end of this year so that if you have been renting this year mm. you could claim claim back some tax against the rent that you've already paid which would be a few hundred euro back into your pockets. One thing which is slightly more up in the air is what the government is going to do on the side of landlords. Now, a lot of renters might feel like landlords don't deserve a huge amount of tax treatment because they, they would be perceived as doing fairly well. But the government's concern is that with the property market potentially at the risk of tipping over and having property prices falling again, that there are a lot of landlords who are simply getting out of the market who want to sell up their house now at close to its peak value before we might be looking at something of a recession next year. And of course, every time that a landlord sells a house, it usually means that a tenant gets kicked out and may have nowhere else to go. So the government wants to try and give some sort of tax incentive to landlords to try and at least keep them in the market or at least try to have them committing to remaining for another five or ten years. And Michal Martin, a couple of days ago in New York, specifically said that that was going to be a goal. But as we understand it, there is still a little bit of resistance as to how exactly you're going to be able to, to mm. force people to commit to re- remaining in the market in exchange for some sort of favourable tax treatment. Ironically, this is also some sort of tax break that the opposition parties have been looking for. Sinn Féin and Owen O'Brien have been saying for quite a while that they would like for there to be slightly better tax treatment for small-time landlords, specifically to try and keep them in the market. But uh, whether they're actually able to, to figure out all the nitty-gritty by, by this time tomorrow still mm. remains to be seen. And what about all of these empty houses all around the country and uh, apartments over shops and main streets in every town in the country? Can the budget do anything to help bring them uh, into the market and make it places for people to rent? Will there be a vacant property tax, for example? It, it's definitely being looked at. Now, whether it takes the form of a vacant property tax or whether it's a vacant site tax as in to try and encourage people to get, to get through a bit of development, I think is still to be finessed. But it, it is definitely, it's one of the few things that Pascal's on who has already basically confirmed that he will do. Of course, you have a lot of ministers saying that, you know, they, they can't speak about what's in the budget because it hasn't been fully signed off by Cabinet or that not, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Pascal Dunne, who has at least broken cover on that one front and has been happy to confirm that there is going to be something along that front because one thing that they're, they're finding very difficult on housing is that they won't necessarily be, or you, you may not see tomorrow the government increasing its overall spending on housing, as, as in housing delivery. There, there might be extra grants for people or, or extra HAP payments or RAS payments, but there won't necessarily be an increase in the budget for housing construction. And the reason for that is that they've already found it very difficult this year to spend the budget that's already there. Uh, and now this, this kind of sounds mm, yeah. crazy to think of it, but if you go and look at the, the first eight months of the year, the government intended to spend around a billion euro on housing construction and wasn't able to spend around a third of that money. So there is a question as to whether it will be worth your while expanding the budget if you're not actually able to spend it. But all of that means, of course, then, that if you want to do something to try and stimulate the provision of housing, then one thing to do is to penalise people that are, are land hoarding. So a vacant property or a vacant site tax is, is one thing that Pascal Dunne, who is definitely looking at. Of course, going back to the question of uh, how many vacant houses are there, because the Department of Finance doesn't believe that there are as many as the census says. Mm. Would you expect any surprises tomorrow? There's always one or two things. One of the things that's been surprising in the last couple of years is that there's there's always something that has managed not to leak it out. And in fact, you know, part of the information management, to go back to what we're saying at the start, with all these things being leaked out in advance, part of the art of it is that you have to make sure that there is something that's worth actually tuning in for so that those of us who are Mm. broadcasting speeches live tomorrow will have something. So there's always something, but, but I suspect that people are so desperate for there to be so much good news that any major rabbits have already been, been long pulled out of their hats by now. Alright, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, still much more to come, obviously, over the course of uh, the next 24, 48 hours for that matter. And thank you indeed uh, for that this morning. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News is a columnist then for the Mead Chronicle. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, we've been hearing one call for a border poll after another. Um, the anticipation of such an event was heightened when the Shadow Northern Secretary, the Labour Party MP Peter Kyle, said over the weekend that he'd outlined the criteria for a border poll if it became likely that conditions outlined in the Belfast Agreement would be met. But the Irish Times reports today that a spokesperson for the Northern Ireland office has told that paper that in accordance with uh, the Good Friday Agreement and the principle of consent, Northern Ireland will remain part of the UK for as long as its people wish for it to be. The overwhelming consensus is that Northern Ireland needs a strong executive to deliver on the issues that really matter, health, jobs, the cost of living, education. And that is our full focus. There is no clear basis to suggest that a majority of people in Northern Ireland presently wish to separate from the United Kingdom. Let's speak uh, to leader and founder of AIM2, Patrick Tobin, a TD for Mead West. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose that puts the question to bed for the moment. Well, I don't think it does. And actually, we had the uh, shadow, uh, the former North of Ireland uh, Secretary, uh, Sean Woodward, um, on the BBC Radio today, of the view that he felt that the criteria necessary for the calling of a border poll actually exists at the moment. Um, You have a situation where Protestants are no longer in a majority, uh, where Unionists are no longer a majority in the Assembly, um, they no longer get a majority vote from the Westminster elections, uh, that in polls, some 48% of the population of the North now say that they want to um, become part of a united Ireland, if you include um, uh, the long-term view in relation to that. Um, so all of the trends are pointing towards more and more people in the North seeking to be part of a united Ireland. Religion and doesn't really have anything to do with it, does it? Well, I think what we're seeing here is a King Canute attitude from Britain in trying to stop the tide coming in. Um, what, like the, the Good Friday Agreement is very, very ambiguous in relation mm. to this, and it's a, it's a problem. It's a weakness in the Good Friday Agreement because it leaves the power with the British Secretary of State, and it leaves it um, very ambiguous to how that decision is made. We in AIM2 believe actually the Assembly of the North of Ireland should make the decision of when a uh, uh, referendum should be held. If it's about but it doesn't have anything to do with religion, does it? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of Catholics who, who'd uh, be very happy to remain uh, in, in the United Kingdom and benefit from everything that goes with that. Well, first of all, I would say that there are Protestants who would be United Irelanders and there are Catholics who would support the union between Britain and the North. Indeed, we've had many Protestants uh, contact us in AIM2 saying that they would like to discuss our vision of United Ireland. Um, and it's, it's, it is not the case that if you're a particular religion, you vote a particular way. But there's a very strong correlation between the fact that Catholics in general do want to see a United Ireland and Protestants in general do want to see... But would they vote for one? Uh, I mean... Uh, how, do you, how do you know unless you have the vote? That's the key question here. So the only proof here, Michael, is an actual referendum. Everything else is speculation. The, you know, I, I listened to the British saying, well, the, the, the threshold hasn't been met, the criteria hasn't mm. been met. You know... Only a referendum will tell you whether the threshold or the criteria are met. In a referendum debate, there is often a swing in one direction of another. Okay. So it is possible to have that debate. And, yeah. and we in AIM2 are looking for a very reasonable, respectful debate. We want to see um, a new Ireland forum where all of the 
the, the citizen uh, organisations, the political organisations sit together and work out what a future United Ireland will look like. Yeah, but what would it look like for people who live in the North, uh, whether you call people Catholic or Nationalist or Protestant or Unionist, uh, would anybody vote for an Irish Health Service, for example? Well, I think we're on the threshold of massive opportunity. And I think like this is, it is historic, the opportunity that we have. First of all, the injustice of partition has been with us for the last 100 years. It has led to a failed state in the North of Ireland. You know, we, we don't even have a, a democracy functioning mm. in the north. Uh, the assembly is not functioning there. Uh, we have obviously the, the, the political chaos in London leading to this. We have Brexit. So, you know, we have a, an opportunity to turn a new page, to develop a new chapter for this country, one where all of the people of Ireland simply determine the future of our own country mm. together. Yeah. And that we don't have Tory ministers in London who know nothing about this country, who care nothing about this country, making decisions over our future. That's okay. the first and most important thing. All right, but even if you're right, if uh, the people in the North uh, voted for a, a united Ireland, would the people in the South want them? Uh, do we want to increase our population by another million people and add the pressure that comes with that to health, welfare, justice and so on? Well, first of all, the increase of two million people would be uh, the, the we would have a population of seven million that would give us a bigger market. Oh, which, sorry, is there two million in the north? Two million in the oh, north, yeah. My yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so we would have a bigger market to sell our products. Uh, we would have uh, more MEPs. We would have more influence in in what happens in the European mm. Union. We would have a a bigger bang um, okay. in in terms of international uh, influence. All right. a, okay. as a country. But, but, so, but look, but, but look at that. Uh, just a, in a very very um, crude way. Uh, you go from a health budget of twenty-two billion next year to thirty billion just for the health service. Where did you get that eight billion? Well, first of all, there's this is a really important question. Um, now, the reason why the north of Ireland is an economic backwater is because the decisions are made in London. So there's a very clear correlation between self-determination and economic progress. When the south of Ireland was ruled by London, we had famine. We were hardly able to feed ourselves. Even the north of England and Scotland are not represented well economically because London makes decisions for the home counties. It doesn't worry about what's happening in the north of Ireland. The people in Newry are, are just as clever as the people in Dundalk. The people in Monaghan Town or, or in Dungannon are just as enterprising as the people in Monaghan Town. You know, the, the, so, the some of them in, would in say it'd be very foolish. Hardworking as the people in Letterkenny. If we uh, and and some of them on both sides of the border would say it'd be very foolish uh, to take on the extra cost of uh, uh, what about forty percent increase in the population. Well, first of all, if we had an inc- if we had Irish unity, I'd have no doubt that the economy of the North would actually improve very, very significantly. And in actual fact, studies carried out by universities have shown that there would be a massive economic boost, north and south, in, in relation to Irish unity, that the GDP north and south would increase. And the British University of British Columbia carried out a, a economic modelling of what unity would look like. Uh, Kurt Hubner was the professor who carried that out, and he showed that everybody's uh, uh, income would actually rise in the case of a United Ireland. So the lack of self-determination in the North of Ireland has left it an economic backwater, and as a result, it hasn't developed as it should. Um, but... You know, if you look back 100 years, most of the industrial and uh, economic energy that existed in Ireland actually existed in the three counties around the, the, the uh, Belfast. 
you know, the South was known for bread and biscuits industrially then, and the North had a massive shipbuilding industry, uh, massive linen industry, mm. etc. I have no doubt that we would see the increase in the standard of living and the, the, the wealth of the North in a United Ireland situation. Okay, but you're talking about uh, this additional cost on the Irish state, uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, you'd lose the subvention that comes from London to the North. Well, I, I have no doubt that Michael Collins and De Valera were basically told by people in their day that, oh my God, guys, if you, if you go down the routes of uh, Irish independence, you're talking about an additional cost to people and the loss of the subvention from London. I have no doubt. But we had a generation of Irish people who were willing to stand up for themselves, who saw that actually if we made decisions about our own future, that they would be better decisions than a disinterested London making decisions uh, on our behalf. We, the people, can actually develop this country in a way uh, in which benefits everybody's um, uh, economic situation. That's clear to me. And, you know, I have no doubt there will be a transition period. I believe that Britain should be involved in in covering some of the costs of that that transition period. I have no doubt that the European Union will will help in relation to uh, that transition period as well. And what what, what if there's armed resistance? Well, first of all, um, we, we, we can decide to ditch our democracy because of a threat of armed resistance if we want. We can basically decide that the will of the people is inferior to armed resistance uh, if we want. I personally don't believe that there's any interest, any uh, appetite or any um, view in the north of Ireland in relation to that at all. I think that's purely scare tactics. It doesn't exist on the ground. And that's, you know, I've been, I've met with Protestant groups uh, in Belfast, in Fermanagh, uh, and I'm talking to people, many of whom uh, are open to a discussion about what an agreed Ireland would be. And that's, you know, one of uh, AIM2's particular objectives is that new Ireland form. Let's bring people together now to talk about what unity would look like in the future. The danger we would go is that we don't have this discussion at all. We end up like the British in terms of Brexit, we end up calling a referendum with no planning uh, and you know, no modelling, no investments, no, mm. no work done of what the future is going to be. And that would be absolutely wrong. I also believe, and this is the aim of AIM too, is that the, north is, the border is like a wall with a thousand blocks. We need to start taking down those blocks one by one. And what I mean by those blocks is these are barriers to people's lives. So, you know, the removal of a, a barrier to access to healthcare for people in North Louth and North Monaghan into Daisy Hill Hospital, that would be a removal of a block. But it would also benefit people's lives. You know, an All-Ireland Cancer Strategy, you know, where investment is delivered on, on an All-Ireland basis, that would improve people's lives and reduce the, the blocks there. An All-Ireland Ambulance Service. So if you're, if you're living in, in North Leitrim, you can get an ambulance coming from, from Enniskillen, if necessary, rather than mm. having to wait for an ambulance coming from Roscommon to you. There's a whole lot of steps that we can take that improve people's lives individually and also starts to erase the border, take okay. down those blocks. And then when, when all those blocks are removed and it's lower, it'll be easier to transition into a unitary state on that sunny day. OK, we don't know what the criteria for a border poll is. Uh, what should it be? Uh, it's possible, I suppose, uh, that uh, the Labour uh, Party uh, could decide on that. They say that they'll outline what the criteria will be. Uh, what do you believe should be the situation that would uh, make it plausible to hold a, a poll? To, to be honest, uh, I believe that the Assembly of the North should be the location of the decision. 
um, because but this, this should is that's collapsed. I mean, there's, there's there's very little hope of that ever sitting again. Well, to be honest, again, like, and, and this is another policy of ours. We have to reform the assembly in the north of Ireland, and the way that you reform the assembly is you make it that no political party can actually throw its toys out of the pram and pull the system down. No political party can hold the system to ransom. That if you, if you don't want to sit in the Assembly, fine, you don't have to, but the Assembly mm. will continue without you. Well, it can't at the, the moment. Case. It can't at the moment because there isn't a political will amongst the government in the South or in London to make that happen. But it wouldn't be tolerable, Michael, anywhere else in the world. Can you imagine if, you know, we were having a conversation about mm. a cost-of-living crisis that's affecting everybody here, and at the end of the sentence, we said, well, unfortunately, we don't have a doll to actually mm. in, 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 in impact anybody's uh, lives. It's absolutely wrong that the North is being held to ransom in this fashion. And again, it's being held to ransom by that, what I would call, anti-democratic instinct amongst political unionism. Yeah. We, you know, so we, so, so, so how, how, how do you go about changing that? Well, the way you do that is... First of all, are you talking about the anti-democratic uh, instincts amongst political unionism or the resistance to the British in terms of a referendum? Um, <laughs> the anti-democratic position the unionists have taken. Because it, it seems to me uh, that the Assembly will never sit it again. The power sharing has collapsed permanently. O- unless how uh, uh, home rule, if you like, uh, is structured in the North. Well, first of all, the Assembly has to sit again. We don't have a choice. There are about 30,000 f- uh, people who are getting food from food banks in the north of Ireland at the moment. Mm. We have spikes in the level of, of suicide in places like Belfast and Derry. Currently, okay. we have, But know, the unionists say they won't take their seats uh, unless uh, the well, Northern what, Ireland what, Protocol is abolished. If that happens... We would re- reduce the wages of, of MLAs who refuse to sit in okay, Stormont. But, but if that happens, if the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol is uh, abolished, uh, you're not saying that AIN2 would take seats in uh, the Assembly. I'm sure that there's many who wouldn't. Well, first of all, if I, I don't believe that the protocol is going to be abolished um, at, at all. So then the unionists won't take their seats. So as things are structured, there's no prospect of uh, the Assembly and being the second, re-established. The second point I was making is that there should be never... A, um, a, 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 a reason why people won't be active democratically uh, in the Assembly in the North of Ireland. You know, you cannot, and again, this is really important, you have to reform the Assembly so that everybody takes their seats, and if they don't take their seats, the Assembly still functions without them. And I have no doubt if that's the case, the well, unions would, would be in like yeah. Flint. Well, that's that's so, rewriting the Good Friday Agreement, of course. And, and, and we, like, otherwise, we're going to have this crisis over and over again. And we've had this crisis three or four times. Mm-hmm. Sinn Féin threw, the pram, threw the toys out of the pram a number of years ago. They brought down the Assembly for, for over two mm-hmm. years. Which you were very supportive of, of course. Well, I wasn't. At the time, I made arguments internally in, in Sinn Féin that we have to mm-hmm. go ahead and make sure that people have a job, that people have a house, that people have access to health care. You know, and that was very important to me at that time, and it's still the case currently. Um, so what I'm saying is we need democracy to function. That's paramount. Nobody, able, nobody should be able to pull it down. But the key question that we have here as a generation, this may be the generation of Irish people that finally gets to see something that you know 800 years of Irish people have longed for, uh, and that's where Irish people make decisions over Irish people's future. Mm. Um, I believe that that's not just a, a political dream, a pipe dream. Okay. I believe that that has 
significant economic okay. and societal benefits for us. Just, just to conclude, if a vote fails, there can't be another vote for seven years. So when should the vote take place if there is to be a, a poll? We, we believe the vote should take place between the next three and five years. Okay. Um, and that's really important. We believe the criteria are basically there at the moment. And we believe that reasonable people listening to reasonable arguments about the benefits of unity uh, will be swayed towards a peaceful, respectful unity, a pluralist country of Catholic, Protestant and dissenter okay. uh, working together for our benefit. I'm sure there's some who agree with you. we we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, founder and leader of uh, the Ain2 Party, that's Padder Tobin, a TD from Heath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, let's speak uh, to Seamus Boland, who's uh, the CEO of Irish Rural Link. A very good morning to you, Seamus, and thanks for joining us ahead of uh, tomorrow's budget. Uh, there'll be a number of things you'll be watching out for in terms of how lives in rural communities uh, can be improved from what we hear tomorrow. But uh, I take it there'll be a lot of attention on energy, the cost of energy, and indeed transport for that matter. Absolutely. Energy is the big, big uh, issue of this budget. And of course, in rural areas, as we have consistently pointed out over the years, transport uh, is the reason why the annual household budget in rural areas is around €100 a month higher, uh, really because of transport. And that's in normal times. So obviously, that is a major issue affecting rural households who are so dependent on the car. Um, and there are obviously the whole area of the price of electricity mm. then, and also the situation in, in, in terms of will there be anything in uh, people who wish to convert uh, maybe solar, um, their roofs to solar power, etc., which might help the, the ESB. But there's a lot... It's really energy, Michael, more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, do you think people will be disappointed or if they're not disappointed that they'll find it difficult uh, to meet uh, the cost of energy bills? You were calling for a 50% increase in the fuel allowance. Uh, I think what I'm saying is uh, that there'll be a 100 fuel allowance lump sum and a, a double week of uh, the working family payment uh, that will be paid, uh, which might help people through that. Well, yeah, I mean, it looks like from the, the, the kites flown at the moment, Michael, that there certainly will be proposals from the government. The one, um, the problem about the one sum allowance or the one, you know, that kind of fixed allowance is we don't know uh, will or how long that will be uh, of any relevance for. But look, it, we have to wait and see. But we would welcome at least that. Uh, but we, we basically said the fuel allowances, though, uh, have been woefully um, reduced over the years in terms of inflation, etc. And for many people living alone in rural areas, uh, we thought a 50% from our analysis and figures, a 50% increase is pretty much basic uh, requirement. Uh, and it, I'm not even sure since we wrote this last July that it'll even uh, uh, resolve it for people. So mm. that to us is a minimum. I suppose we're expecting this €600 Euro credit uh, on our electricity bills. Uh, will that uh, go far enough? Well, I think in truth, the, uh, the economists and those who are better at it than anyone in terms of judging the figures and the price of oil, etc., are saying uh, not really. Uh, 
yes, again, when these figures were being mooted a few a couple of months ago, we were thinking maybe. But it does. The reality is the war in Ukraine, with the uh, upping of, of uh, I suppose, of, of anger from Putin, etc. It looks like we could have a very serious shortage of energy in in Europe, and that will bring up the prices. So, in a sense, this budget, with that kind of announcement, Michael, might actually be enough for now. Will that be okay going into the new year? And it's certainly not looking like it at the moment. All right. Uh, I suppose uh, you hear quite a a number of people uh, criticise the Green Party in parts of rural Ireland uh, because uh, of carbon taxes uh, and the like and uh, the increase uh, that that will put on uh, fuel and heating homes and so on. But could the Green Party be good for rural Ireland through this government in improving public transport? I, I think so, and we'd never fully join in that kind of criticism. Certainly we didn't support and don't support the carbon tax because we feel uh, it should be much more ring-fenced and it's not really giving choice to, to individuals in rural areas. That's the problem about carbon tax. But, uh, I mean, generally in terms of transport, I mean, again, Michael, I, I hate doing this because it, it, it drives me mad as well as maybe your listeners trying to talk about urban-rural divide, but yeah. the the transport reductions mainly felt in Dublin City and in the cities generally where uh, the buses are, or the Air Northern and the bus Air are, were very good, but they haven't really trickled into rural Ireland. I mean, the reality is we still are paying huge costs and huge prices for our bus fares. Uh, that's where bus services exist. So I know the Greens have lots of good ideas in terms of improving the transport in rural Ireland, but, you know, we really need to see some of those come into play. And just going back to the travel allowance, mm. fortunately, many people in rural Ireland, uh, and, or, you know, back in the day my, when my mother, before she died, she was 80, uh, she never used the bus pass ever. Mm because there was no transport required that you could use it on. So this this is a real problem for people living in, alone in rural Ireland. So we, we have talked to the Greens on this, and we're saying to them, uh, either you, you give people an allowance in their pensions to cover the extra transport costs, because they're not getting it in the same way as people living in the cities. Mm, and we hear about... Uh, the need uh, for more disposable income in cities uh, and that uh, people in Dublin uh, working for the public service uh, probably uh, should be paid more than those who are are working in the country. Uh, But that's a kind of a a two-way street uh, when you put it the way you did there about uh, all well and good having a a bus pass, but you don't have a bus to get onto. Yeah, I mean, I know local link do great work around the country and uh, you, you'll get their services pretty much in every county, but they are woefully uh, you know, under, under-resourced in that sense. They can't provide the kind of bus service uh, we're talking about. Nor, and in some cases, they, they work very hard, but they, well, we need a bus or a transport service on demand. We need to put use of the bus pass into the hands of the, the person, the customer, the pensioner, uh, so that they can ring on a demand service. And until that comes into place, uh, I don't see um, rural people being able to use transport, or at least the subsidies towards it, to their benefit. Hence, 
they're going to be spending much more money, even to the relations, bringing them into appointments, etc. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody's petrol and diesel has gone up. So it's, it's an extra cost. Uh, the pensions really are not keeping up with that kind of meeting that extra cost. And that's the real problem. And unfortunately, it does create a divide. Now, I know there are people living in Dublin have other costs which are incredibly high and indeed many rural people want to continue to go back to their areas and work from home we're getting that as well so it is as you said a swinging around the boat but anyway regarding mm-hmm. transport rural people do not get much advantage from the subsidies okay we leave it there for the moment thanks as always for joining us Seamus Boland CEO with Irish Rural Link now thanks too to John and Navin who was on the phone to us and he says he, he finds it difficult to understand what people are spending their money on and how they're finding it so difficult to make ends meet John is a pensioner he's in his 80s as is his wife who's uh, in her 70s she's a pensioner as well obviously every week uh, they go to the post office to get their pension and between their pension and the fuel allowance they get 550 euro they spend 100 in the supermarket 50 on the BHI 100 on uh, their energy bill and then a few bob every week on the car Uh, John says he goes to the pub for a few pints on a Saturday and he places a bet or two at the weekend and they still manage to have a few bob over at the end of the week John is just baffled to hear about how so many people are not able to get by. He wonders what it is that you're spending your money on. Uh, Maybe you'd care to uh, inform John. Uh, Jimmy, uh, in touch with us, thanks for your call, Jimmy, says uh, that uh, he was listening to the interview with Paterto Bean and he wants to ask, how much will it cost to deliver a United Ireland? He says not everybody in the Republic wants a United Ireland and he says he is quite satisfied with the way things are going here at the moment. Well, thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. There is uh, real concern about a a nuclear threat uh, to the Ukraine. Uh, The President Vladimir Zelensky has been saying uh, that Russia is no longer bluffing. Maybe they were bluffing previously, but now it could be a reality, he says. Meanwhile, uh, the American President uh, Joe Biden has warned Russia of making overt nuclear threats against Europe. He says it's a reckless disregard for nuclear non-proliferation responsibilities and the US has told Moscow that there will be catastrophic consequences that they will have to face if there is a nuclear strike. At this time of heightened nuclear threat, it is deeply regrettable that one country alone, Russia, prevented agreement at the 10th review conference of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty last month. The heightened nuclear risks arising from Russia's aggression against Ukraine and the threats to nuclear safety and security resulting from military activity in and near civilian nuclear facilities in Ukraine are unprecedented. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty must remain an essential element of international peace and security. The urgency of its full implementation cannot be overstated. It's a, a very scary thought. And as you know, the Taoiseach Michal Martin told the United Nations in New York uh, that uh, the Russian invasion has to be condemned on all levels. In the past few days, many of my colleagues in this hall have spoken of Russia's illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine. 
For European member states in particular, this carries dark echoes of our continent's past. We face an expansionist power brutally invading and occupying a peaceful neighbor. We faced this many times in Europe in the 20th century. We did not think we would face it again in the 21st century. But this is not just a European issue, not just a concern for the West. All states, and particularly small countries such as my own, should fear a world where might equals right, where the strong can bully the weak, where sovereignty and territorial integrity can be blatantly violated, and where the UN Charter, the charter that all of us in this assembly have faithfully put our trust in, can be flouted with impunity. Taoiseach Michal Martin now and the last war in Europe of course Irish forces didn't participate uh, as a neutral country we didn't involve ourselves militarily in uh, the Second World War that should continue to be the case according to a new group the Irish Neutrality Group which was launched on Wednesday of last week let's uh, speak uh, to John Molyneux who's a a member of uh, that group and a member too of the Irish anti-war movements steering committee. Good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Uh, has the time Good come... Good morning, Michael. Thank uh, you has the time come, not come uh, for us to say that we should be doing our own fighting? If we're uh, facing a threat from Russia uh, because this nuclear threat seems to be very real, uh, surely we should do our own fighting? Do our own fighting? I don't think Ireland should be fighting at all, except that we should be fighting for peace. I think the situation is extremely dangerous, uh, and I think the different governments uh, are just drifting towards catastrophe um, uh, quite uh, uh, aimlessly and seemingly oblivious to the threats. Uh, I, I would make a comparison here with what's happening over climate change. The world's governments are just letting climate change go uh, a rip in a way that will produce catastrophe in 20 years' time, in 10 years' time, and they do it for short-term gain. Mm. I, saw, I think I saw. Michael Martin was just grandstanding in that speech, um, like when he called for um, uh, uh, Russia to be removed from the Security Council of the UN. Just, just paint to the gallery. I mean, the members of the Security Council of the UN are China, France, Russia, UK, and US. Well, what are they going to do about China, for example? What are they going to do about the US? Are they going to move, ask for them to be removed from the Security Council because the U.S. In, illegally invaded Iraq and fought a disastrous war in Afghanistan? Are they going to ask for China to be removed from from the U.N. Security Council yeah. um, because of China's bad, be- terrible behaviour towards the Uyghurs and, um, uh, and so on? This is just... But what do we do? I mean, uh, do we stand back and watch uh, the next Chernobyl unfold in front of our eyes? Right. Of course, what is happening with um, the danger to the environment with the nuclear power facilities in Ukraine is terrible. But that's one reason why we shouldn't go for nuclear power. You see, once you get locked into this, you draw the wrong conclusion. I'm not. I don't mean you. Mm, I mean mm, Michael. I mean mm. they uh, draw the wrong conclusion from every situation. There is a terrible threat of a nuclear disaster. So what they say is up the war up the ante, send more weapons. It's, it's the opposite should be the case. Um, the case should be that we don't rely on nuclear power because it is so dangerous. 
Mm. Um, but you're trying to rationalise an irrational. You're trying to rationalise a mad situation. I mean, the war in Ukraine seems complete madness to me. Of course, it's madness. And you have a, um, a, a and you have um, a desperate situation now from the Russian perspective, which is a, 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 a nuclear state. When you say I'm trying to rationalise it, what I'm trying to do is to say that we must struggle for peace. And when people talk about what should we do, what should Ireland do, what should so-and-so do, they always talk about it in terms of governments, and they always forget about the ordinary people. There is actually mass anti-war protests in Russia, and that is a great thing. They're very, very brave. They face repression, but they could bring down Putin. And we have to remember that people have a say in this. The ordinary people who suffer, whether they're in Ukraine Mm. or Russia or anywhere else, are the people who really suffer from war. Uh, They're the people who do the fighting. They're the civilians who get killed. And people can rise up against war and people can struggle for peace. Mm. i just make another situation here. Iran has a horrible dictatorship. But the women of Iran are leading mass revolt against that horrible dictatorship. People can rebel. They did in the First World War. The First World War came to an end through people's revolt from below. Even Ireland played a role in that Mm. with the Easter Rising and so on. And it gets written out of history as if people aren't actors. The Russian people, the ordinary people, and people here and people throughout the world can struggle against this madness. Okay, but what happens in Iran doesn't really have much impact on the lives of people in this country. And I don't mean to downplay the situation there, but if there's a nuclear strike on the Ukraine or if a nuclear plant is struck, it will have a very serious impact on people in this country. And and even without that, we're looking into a winter where we can't afford to heat our homes, let alone turn on the lights. That that's absolutely true, and the war uh, in Ukraine and the escalation of the war in Ukraine is having a significant impact on the cost of living and energy prices and so on, which is um, disaster for ordinary people. Um, I and I think most members of the Irish anti-war movement went on the cost of living protest on uh, mm-hmm. uh, on Saturday, Saturday yeah. the big protest mm-hmm. in uh, in Dublin, and quite right, these issues are all connected. Remember that uh, although. Energy prices are going through the roof and people can't ho- um, keep their homes. The um, big corporations, their profits are going through the roof. This is what happens in war and in life. The, the, the rich benefit from these things. Arms corporations will benefit from wars and therefore stoke them and keep them going. Uh, and ordinary people pay the price. My point about Iran was not to say it's directly connected. Mm-hmm. It was to say that ordinary people can resist dictators, they can resist rotten regimes, uh, and they can resist in Russia. And that is the best, one of the best hopes for peace in, in, in Ukraine, is that okay. the ordinary Russian people will say we are not having this war anymore. And we'll end on that very strong message. John Molyneux, member of the Irish Anti-War Movement's Steering Committee, thank you indeed. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 
LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.